Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I have managed to rope my guest back for a, oh gosh, fourth? Fifth? Fourth appearance now. And it's the fourth of many, many appearances to come. Jason Miller, say hello, Jason. Hello, Jason and Joe. After I trashed your show with the Space Pirates, I'm amazed you are letting me within a million miles of the hamster. Well, okay. So I had too much fun recording those six episodes of the Space Pirates. Um, that was like the pilot episode of your podcast, wasn't it? I wouldn't say no to a salami sandwich. I wouldn't even oh, say so, no so, to so a sorry. salami sandwich. How's that we going? Are, it is going phenomenal. You were kind enough to be the guest for the Space Pirates. We covered all six episodes. It was a delight and a pleasure. We are getting some interesting mm. almost universally positive feedback on the twitter i understand that you got a little bit of pushback for criticizing the the snore games uh, the oh, board games what's uh, it called i know that someone contacted me and said you and i need to have a word about you know criticizing this this 10-part epic snooze fest i call it at the end of uh, the trout era uh, we've got some really good shows lined up. We are going to be covering The Prison in Space. We're going to wow. be covering Song of the Space Whale. We're going to be covering Time Lash. All the best bits of the Doctor Who universe <laughs> are all on my show. Well, put me down for some of those. I'm there. But those are not the stories that we are talking about today. And as I said on Twitter earlier, it takes a brave man <laughs> to come on to this podcast and defend what we are, what you're going to defend today. But you don't call it a defense, do you? I vigorously dispute your use of the word defense. <laughs> I make a living in the law, and the word defense has a very specific term. Okay. Somebody who is accused of a crime needs a defense. A city that is under siege needs a defense. Warriors of the Deep, Joe doesn't need a defense. It needs a celebration. This is one of my first stories as a young fan way back in 1984. I will not hear a bad word said about the story. So we're not defending war games. We are sorry. We are not defending Warriors of the Deep. We are celebrating Warriors of the Deep. There is much to discuss. I've got some screenshots to bring to your attention. Oh, I can't wait. I am holding in my hand the, the novelization of the story. Right. There are some fine things in here to discuss as well. And you seem to We're be right deep. this second. Warriors of the Deep. You seem to be right this second in Sea Base Four. Uh, well, my yes, my Zoom background, which we can't see on an audio podcast, is Sea Base Four. Begging the question, Joe, why is your Zoom background not Sea Base Four? Um, do you have enough Sea Base Four in your life? <laughs> Too much. Uh, I, I, I don't went, think you do. I, I, I see. I can turn the lights down here, so I went for a more subdued lighting effect. You know, it's more atmospheric. Um, hang on. So you're saying that what this is kind of the definition of a defense um, is uh, by the fact that somebody or something has committed a crime. Yeah, that's right. My very first paying job out of law school was as a public defender. You're accused of a crime. You get Jason in your courtroom wearing a cheap suit, 1998 style, <laughs> defending you. Right. Warriors of the Deep has committed no crime except, Joe, mm. the crime of being awesome. You've seen it, right? Sorry? You've seen Warriors of the Deep, right? 
I've seen it many times. We're going to watch it again. And you, by the time we are done, 90 minutes from now, you are going to be singing a very different tune. Okay. All right. Well, we'll revisit this at the end. Let's skip into episode one because I can't wait. Um, I'm ready to go if you are. I will count us down as your guest of the week. Oh, no, wait. Five. Sorry. Hang on. No, no, no. Wait, wait. Before you count us in. Could you please just uh, let everybody know your Twitter handle? We do this every time. Come on. I am at Doctor Who Novels, Dr. Who Novels. There are two Twitter accounts with similar names. Mine is Dr. Who Novels. I am tweeting my way through the classic series. My season eight Blu-rays have just arrived from the UK. And I will be today, April the 1st, I'm getting into Terror of the Autons, part two and three. Right. April the 1st, uncannily enough, the same day that my uh, my episode of I Wouldn't Say No to a Salami Sandwich dropped. Bizarre no falling. No, no falling. All right. Okay. So let's go into Warriors of the Deep in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Oh, my. That's still got a bit of volume. Hang on. There we go. Now, how does anything that begins with these opening credits rub you the wrong way this is the, the adrenaline rush that i get from these opening credits brings me right back to discovering the show weekday nights at seven o'clock on channel 21 in new york this would have aired probably december 1984 i've got vivid memories of watching this that's over 36 years ago and the story has never gotten old for me hang on though the with fun, that the argument font, the opening credits with the, that the argument font. you're you're basically saying that anything with a beginning can't rub you up the wrong way <laughs> this is a this is a really good this is a really good model. So I've got some very good direction by Pennant Roberts in this story. Starting with this shot here. This is a set with levels, and now we have a crane zooming down. There are maybe some visual elements of the story that have aged poorly, but that is a great shot. This is a director who really knows what he's doing. Aged poorly? I don't know if they've aged poorly. I mean, they were just poor. Um, okay, but I want to say one thing about the sets because I think the sets are really good i.e the design of them is really really good why the fuck didn't they turn the lights down why didn't they have like lichen going down the walls like they could be really atmospheric sets and instead it's it's lit like a flood lit football match i will explain in a few minutes but that is done as a character choice rather than a design choice okay. and you will see that the sea base sets are light because the characters want them that way but Oh, you yeah. will see a different side of that set in a few minutes. I do love this all this. really good yeah, model work, even for a story terrific. that's 37 years old, by the way. Yeah, no, and, and all of this is kind of done on film, isn't it? In, in, uh, is that E-Link they do that? I'm not sure. But it's re very effective. Okay, okay. The Smiling Silurians. The only thing that I would have done differently is I would have held the Silurians back to the episode one cliffhanger rather than dumping them in right there. There are lots of ponderous scenes of them in episode one, not doing a lot. I mean, with those costumes, there wasn't much you could do other than stand around and deliver exposition. Those were not costumes meant for climbing walls or jumping around or doing acrobatics. And yet, the, the, entire, the entire story is basically an action set piece. I wanted to talk about the diversity of the sea base cast, which mm. Doctor Who was not doing very much of in 1984, but I love this console. 
I love those computer monitors. I love the. Uh... When I um when I went to um the Doctor Who experience in Cardiff, yeah, you could basically get up and close to everything but that console. That console was like. It was like the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. It was like at a distance, you know. I think they were scared everyone was going to just ruin it. Oh, it's glorious. It is a very pretty picture. The Dr. Tegan and Turlow. That is a really good lineup used effectively in about two stories of their run, I would say. And this is, I would say it's more than two stories. This is one of their better outings. I mean, Mark Strickson is absolutely terrific as Turlow, potentially a thankless role. He goes for it. He finds his way in. Tegan was never not good. And this is the oh. fifth Doctor entering his best season. Yeah, definitely his best season. Turlow doesn't do anything in this, though. He just wanders around. I will disagree with you when the time comes. Okay. How now, does, um, how does Terry Sticks um, brew up this in the novel? Is it really exciting? I bet, I bet he does a great opening. He does. Um, we'll come to that in a little bit. But he makes a big deal of the fact that Seabase 4 is underwater. Um, he does a very good introduction to Tom Adams over here on the left, who plays Commander Vorschach. Uh, says that, he has the rugged, good looks of a recruiting poster hero, and he's embarrassed by it. Oh. Now, there in the background is the actress who later on was in a Battlefield as Xiao Young. She was an extra here. Think is, is that her? her? First big break. That's yeah. terrific. She um, was also an extra in The Leisure Hive, but she's pretty prominently featured as an extra here. And then a few years later, she's got a speaking role. I am going to say many mean things about Pennant Roberts in this story. So I would like to say that his ability to recast roles uh, and gender diversify and to uh, to bring in uh, multiracial actors, that is absolutely to his credit, because not many directors were doing that at the time. Exactly. This was a script that was all male and all white, and Penn and Roberts said, nope, we're going to make it more interesting. See, now th these things are, are quite moodily lit, aren't they, in the Silurian base? Which is base. why Sea Base Four needs to be brightly lit as a contrast. Well, that that's a that's an interesting uh, argument there. I still think though, if they had turned the lights down, all of those scenes would immediately have more atmosphere. You're wrong. I will come to that in a few more minutes' time. <laughs> I promise you. There is no right and wrong here. Remember. Okay, oh, oh, there's a bit, this wonderful bit here where you see the guy blinking through the Silurian mask, don't you? There he is. Yeah. This is not the only story. I would say that one of the greatest Doctor Who stories of all time, City of Death, you can see Julian Glover's nose directly <laughs> through the mask, spoiling the cliffhanger. It's no different. It took my partner to point that out to me. I had never noticed that before, watching it with him. And he's like, you can see his nose. Oh, so this is quite nice. These two. I, I don't think either of them are good actors, but it's quite quite nicely done that these two like uh, extraneous characters are given a bit of a relationship. Well, they're not extraneous. Maddox uh, here with the red hair is almost critical to the story. He's the pivot around which the story turns because he is the weak link to Seabase. 
And this is almost a romance with the Israeli actress here on the left. And then in the next episode, he's going to kill her. Yes, that's so awful. That's they start dreadful. Off, they start off as friends and they want, end up killing the other because of the uh, what's going to happen in a few minutes. Award script pretty good plotting. Uh, these award script edited stories. A habit of killing off women in really unpleasant ways. Resurrection of the Daleks kills off about four women in like horrible ways. Ugh. Yeah, I think the last, the first time that you had me on was for Attack of the Cyber. Oh, we discussed yes. his violent misogyny, and it doesn't get any better here. But but it is nice. It is nice to have a bit of backstory for these two, and I think with uh, the two main villains as well, Solo and Nielsen, is it? Right. They they but clearly Maddox gonna... is going to kill Karina in episode two. They have to be friends in episode one. It's a yeah. basic dramatic plot. Oh, look at that dress that Tegan is yeah. wearing. That's awesome. It's incredible. Um, this yeah. is so 1984. This is just the, the, the design here screams 1984. Oh, I love this uh, Sentinel 4. It's like it talks like a proper BBC Englishman, doesn't it? <laughs> this is Sentinel 6. You have entered a forbidden military zone. Okay, I'm not sure if that's the best model work I'll ever see. You know, props for trying. I would say that they wouldn't be able to do much better in 1984. Yeah, that's true. I've seen like model shots they abandoned for Great Show in the Galaxy, which is like years later, and it still wasn't much better. So I would agree with that. Peter Davison's had a haircut, you know. Have you noticed? Yes, his hair is as short as it ever got. Do you know what I love about Mark Strickson? He's always doing something. You know, and I, 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 he almost like shamelessly steals every scene that he's in, in the background. See, and you had said a few minutes ago that he didn't do much in the story, but right there he is uh, using oh. his hands, William Hartnell style, and he's just getting into the scene. But there's a difference between giving him an active role and the actor seizing no opportunities just to steal the scenes. Oh, it's Ingrid Pitt. Ah, uh, Ingrid Pitt. Wow. She yes. had an amazing life. She had an amazing career. And the... Uh, the mascara job here is also amazing, although not quite in the same way. She was a, like a huge um, advocate for Doctor Who, wasn't she? She actually wrote a story which was, I think, submitted for season 27, and they ended up doing a big, big finish, finish version of it. Yeah. It was all the around the um, Philadelphia experiment. It had a, yes, a, the, uh, the, uh, the invisibility experiments on American battleships during World War II. It had a terrific premise. I'm not sure if it was very well written, but it, it had a great idea at the heart of it. But, um, I yeah, apparently, like, Pennant Roberts says that because of her background in horror and science fiction, that she just had a vested interest in, in Doctor Who. Which, you know, she's, she's a fair name, isn't she? Like, a fair-named actress. She was in The Wicker Man, she had a pretty decent part at the end of that, and that's one of you know the ultimate horror, British horror movies. And she was also in The Time Monster, playing the Queen of Atlantis. This is not even her first Doctor Who appearance, right? Oh, good grief. She had a lot on show in, uh, as the uh, Queen of Atlantis. Uh, the, the red emergency lights in the TARDIS, I don't think we've ever seen that before. That is also Pennant Roberts. That is excellent lighting, very creative. Every time they turn those lights down in that console room, it looks ten times better. <laughs> like... Every time they do it. I don't okay. think we'd ever seen that red emergency lighting effect before either. Okay, so, I'm thinking yeah, about the director with. extraneous activity now, because I know I know you're going to talk about the direction. There's actually quite a lot going on in the background, isn't there? 
There is. The extras all have their own inner lives. You know, one of them is patrolling up the stairs. The other one is standing in the back. So he shouts. <laughs> okay. These, the, 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 the screen graphics are very 1984 video game. Yeah. Well, that's the graphics of the time, though. Let's be forgiving. I was 11 years old in 1984. When I envision graphics, when I when I envision graphics in my head, I'm picturing them 1984 style. For me, that is just the default, the gold standard. Do you know what this reminds me of? All this, all this activity and all these people on this big vast set. It reminds me of the control room set in Space 1999. It's quite similar, and I think Penn and Roberts directed some of those as well. I mean, here you've got <laughs> six actors in shot. You've got computer banks. You've got guns. You've got different outfits. You've got the. Uh, radiation suits in the back you've got the brightly lit reebok design costume patterns up here in the foreground <laughs> look okay look, look the that. lights have gone down oh. hurrah right but the lights have gone down because it's an emergency missile run and that proves that the bright lights earlier were a choice of the characters in the story not a mistake by the director the okay. lights can go down the lights do go down but they even say it in the documentary. Like, the actors say it. The director says it. Like, they weren't allowed to turn the lights down. There, there was a, there was but actually, they did! But they, it, they, but they weren't the allowed to do it. They turned the lights down on the TARDIS. They turned the lights down here. The lights are down on the Solorian spaceship. This is a dark story. This scene here, like, these scenes in the, wherever they are, the storage areas. Now, the lights are really good here, and in the corridors as well. Oh, we're about to hit Chekhov's gun, aren't we? Hexachromite gas. Yes. If you're going to introduce hexachromite gas in episode one, you've got to use it by episode four. Which is the same as the dynamic between Maddox and Karina. If he's going to kill her in episode two, they've got to have a song together in episode one. Do you know anything about um, the political situation at the time? Like, Obviously, there's, there's some heavy Cold War elements in this, and I'm a bit dense about all of that. But it is uh, leaning so... into that, isn't it? Let's go to the novelization. The novelization addresses that directly, uh, point by point. Terence Dix was the master at putting exposition in to explain why certain things happened on screen the way that they did. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read out a passage from the novelization, which has gorgeous cover art, by the way. I'm hooked. Go for it. Give me just a moment to toggle my screens. I'm going to watch a man uh, fiddle about with technology in an unconvincing way whilst you do that. Oh, he's so using... Dix, Sorry, Terrence Dix decides that it's the Eastern Bloc versus the Western Bloc who are at war. And of course, that's a very Cold War overtone. And this is his zinger. Worst of all, each side had come to believe in its own propaganda to believe that the opposing bloc was populated, not by human beings, much like themselves, but by cold-hearted, ruthless monsters. And then later on, I think in the episode three material, talking about Nilsson, who's the traitor, Nilsson had no wish to die in defense of the base, of the base he was working to destroy. And that's wow. Terrence Dix just getting right into the political heart of it. That's yeah. what he did best. Those are, those are both great lines. He never he, he didn't hold back in some of his novels, did he? Like he... You can tell when he likes the story and when he doesn't like the story. Now, he didn't create the Silurians and Sea Devils, but he commissioned the stories and introduced them. He and Malcolm Hulk were, you know, lived in the same building. They were, he is, he's not the father of the Silurians and Sea Devils, but he is their uncle. 
So he took the story pretty personally, and he does a lot of exposition. And in the novelization, he even tells us who the Silurian leader is from the original Doctor Who and the Silurian story. But I think as well, like, you know, he recognizes a, a good, a well-structured script. And I think he probably saw that this was a very decent script. And, you know, from what I read from your review, he really it brings it alive in prose. He explains a lot of things. He explains what the sync op operator does, like Maddox. He explains why there are UV light converters on, on Seabase, which come into play in Episode 3. Uh, he, you, you can tell that he really enjoyed taking these scripts. And he even manages to fix the Merca, who we'll hear about, I'm sure, wow. <laughs> in Part 2. And, you know, the one thing he wasn't stuck with, and that was the Duff production values. But, you know, I'm even going to say something about that, because they mention, um, you know, the, the real villain of this story is Margaret Thatcher and her snap election, which forced them into the studio early with a bit more time, because they would have had more time to design, to execute. Maybe people would look on this a bit more kindly. Not you. But, I have, but, but I have a question for you. Since, 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 your, since your biggest attack on the story is the production values, let me ask you a question. Mm. What are your – I'm excluding historicals from this because historicals by nature don't have uh, special effects. What are your three favorite classic Doctor Who episodes, 1963 to 1989? What, science fiction ones? Yes, excluding historicals. Um, if we're going on like the look of them, Robots of Death? Three favorite stories, full stop. Three favorite stories, full stop. Don't worry about the look. Okay. Um, Androzani. Caves of Androzani is one of the greatest stories ever, but it also has the Magma Beast. Oh, for like two minutes. Um, Genesis of the Daleks. I know, I know, the clams. <laughs> I'm not going to clam up about that clam either. Um, and... Oh, gosh, I tell you, the War Games. The war games with the fetish-suited uh, warlord security guards and those enormous, enormous guns, which I'm sure reflected something on the part of the production team. But I'm not just saying that production values are at fault here. I think the direction is most definitely at fault. Staging some of the action scenes, like, appallingly. I think some of the performances are stagey and unconvincing. I, I don't. I hate episode four, which is essentially a massive massacre, and that's that's how a lot of these stories end in the in the the Eric's Award era. But just just but kill everybody off, you know. It's... We are still at episode one. We are about to come up on the first pause the screen moment. There is a oh wonderful word. screenshot coming up, and I will tell you when to pause your screen. I'm ready. We're gonna we're gonna pause the video. We're gonna talk about this shot because it puts the lie to what you're saying about this story being poorly produced. Well, in in one second shot. Yes. Okay. In one a one second shot. <laughs> okay. I can't wait. I just hope we we play press play at the same time. <laughs> it can't be that shot of the disc, surely. Okay, so the Doctor and T are going to go down a corridor. Oh, I think you're a, I think you're a second ahead of me. Oh, okay. Don't worry. Uh, we may have missed it, but it's it's a shot where the 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 panel opens and you can see 
Milson and Solow smirking in the background as he is pulling the disc out of that pop-up window. So the way that it's shot, the villainy of those two characters is revealed right through the window of that box that pops open. I mean, I mean that's that's cute and that's clever. Well, it, that that is not an accident of the production that has to be set up because the way these studios were built, you had to set up each shot to make sure that everything was aligned properly. But so I, see, I'm there, not, there had I, to be there had to be thought and care and planning that went into the construction of that shot. Oh, and I absolutely believe there was thought and care in many of the shots he did. I could probably point out loads, absolute loads of shots. I think that that opening crane shot, like you said, that was with lots of activity going on. Um, and, and, and you know, I'll, I'll probably point out some more as we go along. I just feel like in and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in episodes uh, three, two and three, when they're attacking, there is some desperately poor direction there in terms of an action sequence. Com and I'm going to compare it to things like Case of Androzani, which does similar things. It, it is stagey and it's 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 stodgy and it's unconvincing. But we're still in episode one. I so far, there's been, there, look at this. We have, we have the, we have the huge set. We've got a lot of action in the background. We've had good lighting on the Solorian ship. We've had good lighting in the TARDIS, good lighting in the storage room, good lighting on the main bridge. When they turn the lights down during the emergency, we had that nicely framed shot of Nilsson and Solo on the psychosurgery. There's just a lot of visual things to admire right here in part one of Warriors of the Deep. That woman, um, Karina, no, not Karina. What's the woman with the blonde hair? Preston? Preston. I think she's terrific. The bit where she goes into the TARDIS and she's like, oh, she, but she doesn't really get much to do, but she's, she, she, there's an actress seizing a, a part, you know? Oh, that's and great. Look at, look at Ingrid look at there. That, <laughs> and there's this, there's the sinister look on Maddox's face. And then you have Ingrid Pitt turning almost to the camera and smirking. Those are, that's great acting right there from the two of them. Do you know, can I say recently, um, someone on Twitter, did a Photoshop job and put Molly Sugden in place of Ingrid Pitt in several scenes of this, and it looks so convincing. Honestly, I'll I'll I'll, um, I'll send the link to you. Oh, I have not seen that. So, do we know the Sea Devils are in this yet? I believe they're about to be revealed right here in because this scene. in a second, right? There's this hugely atmospheric pan across uh the sea devils in the smoke yeah except they look like a bunch of erect penises in the smoke it's really worrying <laughs> wait till you see it well remember Hannah roberts and matt urban didn't design the sea devils that was inherited from 1973. look at this look look at this slow pan up it's very effective the dry ice, the mist, that is gorgeous. Mm. This is a gorgeous shot. But, uh, you know, please at least acknowledge there are some issues with both the Sea Devils and the Silurian costumes. We'll talk about that in part three. Okay. We'll talk about that in part three. But again, these are monsters that were designed 15 years earlier. And they didn't have the money to do a full-scale re revisit. So, in a sense, they were confined by the costumes that they had. But oh. when you have atmospheric stuff like this right here, this is an atmospheric shot of the Sea Devils wreathed in smoke. 
that makes up for a lot of sense. I'd still turn the and lights also, down even more, though, because look at that. That is like a, a game show set behind them there. When the lights go up, you can see that's a game show set. Uh, in HD on DVD, there's, there's Hebrew lettering on the panel. In, in DVD, uh, that's much more resolution than you would have seen this on on your 13-inch console in 1984 that's in non-HD vision. It was never meant to be seen as crystal clear as this DVD. Jason, are you broadcasting from the future? Is this out on Blu-ray already? <laughs> hey, if the Space Pirates can be out on Blu-ray, <laughs> so can the DVD. Oh, okay. I, have, I need to talk to you about this. This very placid, welcoming doctor, who, like, the first thing he does is kick the shit out of two people. What's that about? Look, he kicks him right in the face. <laughs> That's self-defense. Well, self they didn't attack him. They just went towards him. This is yeah, a nice there's, stunt. There's oh, a wow. great. This is this is a high up catwalk. You, you have a great stunt coming up here. Look at that backflip. That is you see, some 1970s unit action by Havoc stuff quality backflip. Oh, this is hilarious. Face it, Trigan. He's drowned. <laughs> when I first saw this cliffhanger in 1984, <laughs> I legitimately thought he had drowned. I spent the entire 24 hours until part two thinking he was actually dead. That cliffhanger won't work for me. You know, Elizabeth Sandifer says the point of the cliffhanger is to make the audience engage with the story for a week and wonder how it's going to turn out. And that's half the delight of Doctor Who. And this is one of those cliffhangers that had me trying to work out of my head. How does he get out of this? It is a fine cliffhanger. I'm mostly thinking, how does somebody drown in like five, two seconds? I mean, it's supposed that to be is... it's seawater, so it's supposed to be extremely cold. So maybe the extreme cold knocked him into unconsciousness and then he drowned. And that is also nuclear reactor water. Can't possibly be the safest thing to swim around in. No, that's true. Okay, I have to confess something to you before we see out episode one. I've never enjoyed this more. I've got to say. I, well I'm, done. I'm getting to work on you. You might do it, yeah. Wait. You're we... seeing this story through my eyes, Joe. You're seeing the story through my eyes. We haven't seen the murky yet. Give it time. All right. Let's... You... So, Joe, let me ask you a question before we wrap part one. Mm. Uh, you've been criticizing things that haven't happened yet. You've made criticisms <laughs> about part three. Mm -hmm. You've criticized part four. But thinking about part one, thinking mm -hmm. about the bits of acting that I've pointed out, yes. the lighting that I've pointed out, some of the framing of the shots, what is not to like about part one? Who looks at part one and says, this is as bad as Time Lash? Who looks at part one and says, this is as bad as um, uh, you know, The Claws of Axos? That's a really good part one. And that was the season premiere of season 21. That gets us off to a rip-roaring start for a pretty high-rated season. So, hey, again, what's you, that you haven't let me talk yet. <laughs> okay. I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm building up a very leading question. What's not to like? Uh, so uh, whilst I accept there are some nice atmospherics, some occasionally decent moments of direction, um, and I do like the setting, um, I already think there's problems with the execution because I think there's a lack of atmosphere at some points where there could be. I already think some of the performances are a little bit overly theatrical. I think the dialogue is mostly atrocious um, and, and no human being actually talks in the way that these people on the sea base talks. And I think there are some issues with the Silurians and the sea devil costumes. So that's my issues with part one. I am going to disagree with you because I've pointed out seven or eight different shots in part one alone that are atmospheric. 
Now, granted, Why? Johnny Byrne, Johnny Byrne did a very, he's been deceased for about 12 or 13 years, but he did us the favor in 1994 of going on Rec Arts Doctor Who and giving his thoughts about the production. And I, I was able to find his post in the Rec Arts Doctor Who archives, and I will read out from it the, in the next three parts. So he has much to, to say. Johnny in the... Byrne explaining what about the story was his and what was not his. In the and that doc... might... In the documentary, the in the documentary, has much to say about the product. He says, he says, like the the um, the difference between what's in the writer's mind and what's on the screen is often, you know, quite wide apart. He said, but in with Warriors of the Deep, it's about as wide as he'd ever experienced in his career. So he he is fairly hard on this story as well. Um, I will admit, you have certainly made me see a few more things that I perhaps haven't seen before. I think there is um, a real feeling with Warriors of the Deep. It's a bit like stories like Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Time Lash and things like that, where it's just this idea has sunk into fan consciousness that it's really terrible. So people go into it looking for the worst rather than reevaluating it and looking for the best. So I look forward to doing that with the last three episodes. I will certainly come back for more. <laughs>